right. Thank you so much. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 16. This morning, Acts chapter 16. Sharing time right before preaching is meant to remind us of how important a word from God is in light of the various things we're going through. Uh, recently, Jan ran across a podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, episode about a woman named Hannah Overton. And maybe some of you have heard of her story. It was a pretty uh, publicized story back in 2007-ish or a little before. She was a, she is a Christian woman who at the time was a mother of four kids and had a baby on the way. And she and her husband had decided that they wanted to adopt. And so they had a child in their care, foster care, but they were moving toward adoption. And this child got sick one day. And so she's pregnant. She calls her husband. The husband comes home. They care for the little boy. He's about four years old. And so he seems to be um, just getting worse, uh, throwing up in various things. And finally, they think, well, we probably should take him to the urgent care and see what's going on. So on the way there, he actually stops breathing. And, and so they go from the urgent care to the hospital. And um, he ends up dying in the hospital. And the, the surprising thing about it all is that not long after they took the little boy to the hospital, the police showed up and took Hannah Overton into another room and began interrogating her and trying to figure out, so uh, what happened here? Why did this happen? And what actually ended up transpiring is she was uh, basically charged with poisoning her own child and she was ultimately convicted and sent to prison for life without parole. And that was back in 2007. And so uh, she grew up in a Christian home. She was saved at an early age. Her parents worked uh, in a ministry here in the States serving missionaries on furlough. And so she had been raised in a Christian environment. And she obviously found herself one day free and then the next day in prison. And she was devastated by it. She was crying and wrestling with, what is God doing here? And so all of us have to ask the question, whenever God puts us in a place that's really hard and maybe even unexpected, what are we to do? And the reality is, regardless of what the situation is, the Bible kind of sums up for us in Galatians 5, verse 6, what God calls us to in every situation. Because it basically says circumcision in Christ, circumcision and uncircumcision is it counts for nothing or it mean doesn't mean anything. But what matters is faith working through love. And so there are two things there that Paul highlights that are crucial for us. One is faith or trust and love. And so in every situation, whatever it is, however hard it is, God is calling us to trust him and God is calling us to love in that situation. And so obviously for her, that's what God was calling her to do too. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 16 as well. And so I want to 
want us to highlight the aspects of how in this chapter we see the call to trust and love as we see another uh, situation where believers are put in prison based on false accusations. And this, in this case, it's Paul and Silas. And so let's uh, read to begin with verses 1 through 15. And I just want to highlight three uh, sections and read them separately. One section has to do primarily with the conversion of Lydia. The second section has primarily to do with the deliverance of a slave girl. And the third section has to do with the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And these stories are pretty familiar to all of us. But the question is, how do these stories have any bearing on my life and your life in light of what you're going through and in light of what I'm going through? So look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 16. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So I want to break this passage down into several sections here. The first one is the first five verses talks about the fact that um, Paul, now with Silas, Paul and Barnabas have split up. Uh, Barnabas has gone with John Mark in a different direction. Paul and Silas are now together. and They're beginning the second missionary journey, as it's called, of Paul. And they're revisiting some of the churches that Paul and Barnabas had initially planted. And in the process of that, they meet a young man named Timothy. And it says in verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. Now, what's interesting about that is the fact that Paul and Silas are delivering a decree that basically says you Gentiles do not have to be circumcised, but observe some things that will help the fellowship between you and the Jewish believers. And so the question is, why does Paul do what he does in terms of circumcising Timothy? Well, in that day and time, if you had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, you were considered a Jew because your mother was Jewish. And if you weren't circumcised as a Jew, you were considered an apostate Jew. And so Paul circumcised Timothy not because he felt like he had to be circumcised to be saved, but he circumcised Timothy in order to prevent a hindrance to the gospel to the Jewish people as they preached the gospel in various places. Well, it goes on from there, and it says they're they're moving on, and they're beginning to uh, try to preach the gospel. But interestingly enough, it tells us in verse 6 that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then it says in the next verse that the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to preach the gospel in Bithynia. But then Paul sees a vision in the night where a man is you know, appealing to Paul, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And as a result, they conclude that that's what God wants them to do. Now, there's all kinds of questions about how we're to apply that in our day and time. Is that a prescription for how we're supposed, we're supposed to follow God as well? God definitely works in, in all kinds of ways to lead us And yet, there are some unique things about what's going on here. This is the establishment of the church. Um, Paul had a special gifting. It's very likely that the way that they were forbidden to uh, preach the gospel in particular places is by a prophecy. Uh, Both uh, Paul and Silas were prophets, had the gift of prophecy. And so, um, God still leads us today, but it doesn't typically look like this but we can still trust him to do that so god will do whatever he has to do but primarily he works through the word of god in our lives to lead us in what to do what is right and wise and good and that's what paul was being led to do here as well so ultimately they're led to macedonia and they're led to the city of philippi and philippi evidently didn't have very many jews in it it took 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. And so there must not have been a synagogue there because that's typically what they would do. They would go to a synagogue and preach the gospel. This time they just go outside the city, they find a place of prayer, and there's some women praying there. And they share the gospel, and it tells us that there was a woman there named Lydia, who was evidently a wealthy businesswoman, and God opens her heart to respond to what Paul is saying which highlights the fact that it doesn't say she believed the gospel even though that's what she did it highlights the fact that the reason she believed the gospel it was because god opened her heart to do just that and so when we think about the questions of just looking at those 15 verses briefly what does that tell us about how we're to trust god and to love well to begin with paul's sets the example of basically consider 
uh, how your life either helps people in terms of believing the gospel or possibly hinders people from believing the gospel. The fact that he circumcised Timothy and Timothy was willing to be circumcised is evidence that they were wanting to prevent any hindrances to what was really important, which doesn't mean we have to um, do something different just because somebody doesn't like it. That's not the idea of considering others. The issue is, am I causing someone to fall into sin, or am I possibly causing someone to not even want to hear the gospel because of what I'm doing? And therefore, I choose to do something different for the sake of love. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. At different times, Jan has talked about Elizabeth Elliot, and how she talked about the fact, and this is a quote from her, a Christian's rule of life should be, my life for yours. In small ways, as well as great, he shows the courteous love of the Lord, which means I'm willing to lay down my life for your true good. That you might receive the gospel or at least give it a hearing that you might not be led into sin. So that's one way we can think about our own relationships. Am I willing to lay down my life for the true good of others? Another thing is, when we think about how God led Paul and Silas, and you might notice at one point it starts talking about us and we. Luke wrote Acts. So at some point in there, maybe in Troas, uh, Luke joined Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so they're following God's direction. And even though God said, don't go here and don't go here, but I want you to go here, what was God doing? God was directing them in loving. And that's really the way we need to hear the, the word of God. Because there are a lot of people today that don't like what the Bible says. and don't like what the Bible says about certain lifestyles or about saying or doing certain things. And yet God says, this is how you love. You, you speak the truth and you affirm what's here and you follow what's here. And the reality is, the Bible tells us God is love. And therefore his word is the, what it means to flesh out what it looks like to love like God loves. And therefore, the idea that I can love and reject what God says and, or not follow what God says is a lie. And so that's why we have to be so committed to what the scripture says is true, so committed to what the Bible says we're to do. In Second John, it says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And so... When I think about just my relationships, being considerate in the way that God calls me to, and asking myself, am I actually following what the Bible says in my relationships? That is always what we need to ask ourselves, whatever our situation is, whatever our relationship might be, and the challenges in it. But we also need to realize that there's something that's meant to be encouraging for all of us here who are Christians. For all of us here who are Christians, the Bible in this passage with regard to Lydia, saying the reason why you believe the gospel is because God opened your heart to respond by faith. A lot of times we wrestle with, like I mentioned that uh, lady named Hannah Overton, we get into situations and we wonder, does 
Is God loving me? Does God love me? Um, because of hard situations. And the Bible says God demonstrates present tense his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If I'm trusting in the death of Christ for me, that's evidence that God loves me in a way that will never change. He loves me fully. He loves me forever. He loves me perfectly. Why? Because I would not be trusting in his son without that. He loved me by drawing me to himself, and I can know he loves me because I will say, like Josh highlighted, Peter, where am I going to go? We have no place else to go. And if that's your heart, then you can know that God loves you like the perfect father he is, no matter what you're going through, because he's given you a heart to trust his son, whom he loves more than anything. And so it's an encouraging thing to realize that it's the work of God to bring people to faith. That's why Jesus could say, you might remember, this is in John 6, I believe, people are following Jesus around because they want more free food. And Jesus says to them, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that brings eternal life. And they say, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. He summarizes all that God is doing in the world by saying this is the work of God is to bring people to faith in Jesus. That's what God is up to. And that's what God is up to whatever's happening to us in our lives. It's all a part of God's grand plan to save a people for himself. Even if we don't see how it all plays together and so the fact that we rest in jesus is evidence of the father's love for us it's interesting um matthew henry says this about the situation with lydia and how god opened her heart he says the nature of the work of god is this she had not only her heart touched but her heart opened an unconverted soul is shut up and fortified against christ Christ, in dealing with the soul, knocked at the door that is shut against him. And he's referencing Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And Matthew Henry goes on to say, when that knocking happens and a sinner is effectually persuaded to embrace Christ, then the heart is opened for the king of glory to come in. The words for open there with regard to God opening Lydia's heart is the same word that's used when Jesus opens the ears of the deaf man in Mark chapter 7. It's the same word for the opening of the womb uh, quoted from the Old Testament in Luke chapter 2. The opening of the ears, the opening of the womb for birth, the opening of the heart that life might happen and that the gospel might be truly savingly heard. That's what God did. And so ultimately, Luke is trying to say that in this person's life, Lydia's life, who could have been like the rich young ruler. um, You know what? I've got all that I need. I'm a rich, independent businesswoman. I'm fine. I don't need anything. Instead, God opened her heart to believe in Jesus 
At that point, she was willing to submit all to Jesus, even though she was wealthy. And she did not do what the rich young ruler did and just walk away. But she embraced Jesus as the true treasure, the true wealth that we all are looking for. Well, look, if you will, at uh, verses 16 through 24. Obviously, we could spend a lot more time on these verses, but let's go on and look at the next section and think about what also happened, not only with Lydia, but also with this slave girl. In verse 16, it says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued to do this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here we have, in verses 16 through 18, the deliverance of a young girl. We assume it's a young girl who was demon-possessed. And she's following um, this group of four men around as they're going to the uh, prayer meeting and they're going about the city. And she's, she's walking around declaring that they are servants of the Most High God and they proclaim the way of salvation. And it goes on for many days. We don't know how long it went on. But eventually Paul gets annoyed, the Bible says, and he casts the demon out. And the question is, what's going on here? Why would a demon walk around saying, these are servants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation? Was the devil giving them free advertising? No, not at all. It's clear that... Um, the Bible says Satan is an angel of light and he will appear in such a way that he will associate himself with the preachers of the gospel and the church, but he'll do it in such a way to bring about confusion, not clarity. And so what was happening there is, in that day and time, even the Greeks referred to their gods as at least one of them as the most high God. So it was a very common phrase. So no, nobody would have heard that and said, oh, she's talking about Jehovah, the God of Israel. That could have been a reference to any most high God. And what she literally says is, they're proclaiming to you a way of salvation, not necessarily the way of salvation. And so you've got this situation where she's walking around, and in a sense, the devil is trying to associate himself with Paul and the others. Why? To discredit them. To say, hey, 
what they're doing is really what I'm doing. There's no difference between us. We're kind of in league together. See, I'm the, I'm the advertising branch of this ministry here, and whatever's true of me is actually true of them. It was actually a very subtle way of confusing people about what the gospel really was and what Paul and his band were really doing. And so we see this going on here, and Paul casts out the demon, and obviously the owners of the slave girl, who were making a profit off a woman who was truly demon-possessed, and in some sense was associated with the god Apollo, who was known for fortune-telling, and some way or another, they were making money off this fortune teller. And therefore, when the demon left her, it must have been very, very clear that the demon was gone. Some would say she was even saved at that point, sort of like the uh, Gerasene demoniac. Once the demon was gone, he was actually saved. It's very possible that the Bible isn't clear on exactly what happened to her uh, following that. But it's very clear that she didn't have the ability anymore to do what she was doing before. And as a result, uh, the owners stir up the city, stir up the magistrates, and they beat them. And the beating was sort of like, you've probably heard in some Asian countries, they'll talk about caning people. It was more like that, not so much like uh, a whip that could actually result in death. It was more of inflicting pain uh, as in a caning type of situation. And so when you think about this, just this short section here, and you think, so how do we apply this? Well, Paul knew that one of the most dangerous things that can hinder the gospel is confusion about what is true. And so when he cast out that demon, he was doing a loving thing for everyone who was hearing the gospel. And so... One of the things it says in Colossians uh, 4 is he asks for prayer um, and he prays that I may make the gospel clear in the way I ought to speak. So actually prays, actually asks people to pray that he would make it clear. The gospel would not be confused. And we need to pray the same thing for ourselves, that we would not confuse the gospel, but that we would share it clearly. And the reality is you live in a, a time where the church is becoming more and more compromised in various ways. And as a result, it's, it's gendering all kinds of confusion as to what the truth is, what the gospel is, and what it should do in terms of transforming people's lives. And we have to be clear on the fact that we don't love people in our country by affirming lies. That's the whole point of not being confusing. We're confusing when we affirm lies. So whether it's lies about sexual immorality or identifying myself as something I'm not, whatever it may be, I'm not loving someone by affirming lies. I love them by speaking the truth in love. And it takes wisdom in different situations, but that should be uh, what our goal is. And obviously... Love in this situation is a willingness to suffer. Um, some people wonder why Paul didn't right away say, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. You shouldn't be caning me or hitting me with a rod. Uh, that's illegal. He doesn't do that. It could be that 
They were saying that and they were just ignoring them. Or it could be he didn't say it because he actually wanted to set an example for the other believers by saying, you know what? Just like he had, had told the other believers not too much earlier in the book of Acts, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so he was willing to suffer for what was right, willing to suffer for the gospel. And what's interesting is that um, a lot of people will, will say, you know what, the reason why you Christians are suffering is because you're just stirring up trouble. You know, if you just keep to yourselves, if you just pray in your own house and just keep things to yourselves and not make a stink and not say stuff you shouldn't say, then you wouldn't be suffering. Well, again, Matthew Henry has an interesting comment on all of this. He says, The general charge against them is that they troubled the city, so discord and disturbed the peace. If they troubled the city, it was but like the angels troubling the water of Bethesda's pool in order to healing. So what he's saying is, he's saying, you know what? Just like in the story in John chapter 5 where it says an angel stirred the waters and the first person in got healed. Uh, Matthew Henry says, yeah, they were stirring up trouble in a sense. They were causing trouble by speaking the truth and, and doing the right thing and loving like they should. But the fact that they're causing trouble in and of itself isn't the issue. The issue is why? Because they wanted to bring about healing. They wanted to bring about deliverance. They wanted people to receive the gospel and not to be confused by lies. And so you'll hear people talk in such a way that says, you're just causing trouble. Just zip it. You know, just let people be people. Well, the reality is, in order to be faithful to the gospel, we have to be willing to suffer for the gospel. And that's why Paul could tell Timothy later on, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Expect the gospel to cause trouble for you and for others. But it's something that people need to hear, to be healed, to be set free. And he says, do it according to the power of God. Trust God to give you the grace to do what you need to do. And notice, he says, you might have heard this or not, but he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. He's in prison, but he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Roman government or whoever uh, was holding him. He says, I'm God's prisoner, meaning God put me here. He put me here for a good purpose. And so God's in charge of this whole Thing. He knew he was suffering for what he should be suffering for. Ultimately, Jesus is bigger than the domain of darkness. He can cast out demons whenever he's ready. And he can even use the wickedness of wicked, tyrannical governments to bring about his good purposes. So let's look at the last part of this chapter, verses 25 through 40. It says, But about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, 
and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And so we've seen God deliver Lydia, deliver the slave girl, and now we see him delivering the jailer, setting the captives free. Verses 25 through 28 talks about an earthquake that shook the prison. Now it's unclear if it actually shook the whole city or just shook the prison because the magistrates, no one else actually mentioned that, mentions that in the rest of the story, so it's uncertain exactly how, how localized the earthquake was, but we know that God shook the prison. It says, uh, suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And so Paul and Silas are in jail. They've been beaten. Their feet are in stocks, and usually when you're feet are in stocks, you're not comfortable. It's not meant to make you comfortable. It's not socks, it's stocks. And so they, they're in all kinds of pain and they're praying and they're singing. And that usually gets people's attention. When you're going through a really hard time and you're praying and you're singing. And so the other prisoners are listening and even though it appears at one point the jailer was asleep, at some point he was probably listening too and had heard Paul and Silas. And so what we see is once the earthquake happens, um, the jailer is about to kill himself. And the reason why is that if you, as a Roman soldier, and Philippi was a Roman colony, there were a lot of Roman soldiers that lived there. He was probably a Roman soldier. And it was a, If you were caught in dereliction of duty, um, you should either kill yourself or expect to be killed because the Roman government did not look kindly upon Roman soldiers who did not do their duty. 
It was one way they kept their Roman soldiers in line. And so he knew that if all the prisoners had escaped, uh, one way or the other he was going to die anyway, and so he was about to kill himself. Yet Paul says, don't do it. And he stops and he goes in and he says, interestingly enough, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, according to Luke, simply says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Now we know that's not all Paul said because the next verse says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Which means that was their bottom line. But they explained what they meant. They explained who Jesus was and why Jesus was Lord and and what he did that would actually make him an able and willing savior for this jailer. And so they explained the gospel. They told him the gospel and he and his household believed. And the interesting thing in the way that it's written when it says, it's translated in my Bible, believe in the Lord Jesus. You could actually be a little more strict in your your, uh, translation to to say, believe upon the Lord Jesus. That's the word that she used, believe upon the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? It's sort of like the idea of um, if I sit in that chair next to Milan and I put my full weight upon that chair, then I'm resting in that chair. To believe upon the Lord Jesus is to put your full weight upon him as Lord and Savior, that he is Lord You're going to rest in him as the Lord of everything. He is the only Savior. You're going to rest completely in him and what he's done as Savior. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not a mental thing. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's actually where I am consciously and gladly resting all that I am upon Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior, resting myself upon who he is and what he's promised to do for sinners. And so that's what's happening here uh, in this story. And the story goes on, and obviously um, the jailer and his household are baptized, uh, interestingly enough. And, uh, and then Paul and Silas go back into the prison, and the next day the magistrates send the police and say, go let them out. And Paul, interestingly enough, says, oh, no, you don't. You're not letting us out secretly. But he says, no, let them come and escort us out. Now, was Paul just being a pill? Was Paul just being stubborn or you know, getting some measure of revenge or show, trying to show them who's boss or whatever? Not at all. What Paul was doing was he knew as a Roman citizen he did have certain rights, which for whatever reason he did not exercise when he was getting beaten. But he chose to exercise those rights at this point. Why? Well, most likely, the Bible doesn't go into exactly why, but most likely it was out of concern for the other believers. Uh, they were going to have to leave the city, but there were believers there that were going to have to stay. And they were still in danger of being persecuted. They were still in danger of being beaten and thrown into jail too. And so Paul, in a sense... Uh, forces the magistrates to escort them out as a way of saying these men are innocent and as a way of basically uh, discouraging the magistrates from doing anything against the believers, at least for a while, 
because the magistrates were afraid that Rome would hear about what they did to some Roman citizens and actually come and discipline them in some way. So the fear of the Roman government would result in the magistrates being more kind to the believers in the city. It was a very practical, loving thing for Paul to exercise his rights. And that's the only thing, only reason why we should do so in our country as well. We exercise our rights for the sake of love and for the progress of the gospel, not because we feel like we deserve something. And so the encouraging thing about how this chapter wraps up is obviously God shook the jail as Paul and Silas prayed and sang. God is able to do whatever God needs to do for his glory and our good. He can do anything. He can do anything. Just like Mary asks, you know, the angel, you know, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel says nothing will be impossible for God when it comes to glorifying his name and doing his people good. Nothing will be impossible for God. And the encouraging thing with regard to the jailer that calls us to trust is that um, Paul didn't come up with any conditions for the jailer when he said, what must I do to be saved? He basically said, what you need to do is do nothing. You need to believe in what Jesus has done for you. You need to believe in who he is and what he did. It's not about what you do. Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. Are you a sinner? Do you need a Savior? Then Jesus is ready, able, and willing to save you. And therefore, we we hear Jesus himself saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's a promise to anyone and everyone. If you will come to me, Jesus says, you will find rest. Rest from your works and efforts to please God on your own and true peace and joy in him. But again, as I said, God calls us to love people around us by using our rights to protect other people. And sometimes that might mean actually holding people accountable. That's what Paul was doing. He was holding those magistrates accountable for the sake of love. Isaiah says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, like these government people, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, just like the people, believers in Philippi. But ultimately, it's interesting, the jailer showed his trust in God because he was willing to do something that could have gotten him killed. He took those prisoners home and fed them. He washed their wounds. He cared for them. The magistrates could have killed him for dereliction of duty. And yet the jailer, once he believed in Christ, knew what his duty was. His duty was to love Paul and Silas, no matter the cost. And to rebel against that tyrannical, wicked government. It's interesting, uh, early on in our history, one of the mottos suggested for the excuse me, the seal of the United States was rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. 
A tyrant is someone who tries to make you do that which is unlawful, both on the human level and in terms of what God says is right and wrong. And therefore, to be obedient to God is to be in rebellion against tyrants. And that's why Peter could say earlier in the book of Acts, we must obey God rather than men. Let me bring this around and close with this. I mentioned Hannah Overton at the beginning of the message who was put into jail, put into prison for life with no hope of parole based on a false charge. And she spent seven years in prison. And obviously, as I mentioned, initially she really wrestled with what God was doing, whether or not God had abandoned her, whether or not God was, didn't love her, all those kinds of things. And yet, God brought her to the point of seeing that what he wanted her to do was to trust him. And it's interesting, um, she mentions the fact that several people gave her these verses from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 5 and 6, it says this, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. And she said initially she had no idea why people were telling her these verses because it was at a point where her child was still alive in the hospital. And she said, give me a verse that applies to my child getting healed. She had no idea that she was on the verge of going to prison and based on false charges. The reality is what happened was her son on his own ate way too much salt and it actually resulted in him dying. And yet the prosecution ignored uh, ways that they could have exonerated her and actually prosecuted her unjustly. And so those verses were given to her even before that started to happen as a way of saying, God is going to take care of you. Trust him with this process. Now, she said, as the process was going on, and she was going through the trial, as a Christian, she thought, well, God's going to you know, uh, make sure that they find out the truth, and I'm innocent, and I'm going to walk away from here. She was totally shocked when she actually had to go to prison. But she didn't get the answer that she thought she was going to get. But she went into prison, and God did some amazing things. There was a woman in there who wanted to kill her because she started a number of different Bible studies with the ladies in the prison. And one of those ladies was the girlfriend of this other woman. And that other woman didn't want her girlfriend to be in the Bible study. And so that other woman said, I'm going to kill you. And word got out. This other woman ended up going into solitary confinement. But eventually she got out and they were going to bunk her right beside Hannah. And Hannah was terrified. And yet this woman comes out and says to Hannah, can I talk to you? And she says, while I was in solitary confinement, I began reading my Bible and I became a Christian. Will you teach me? Pretty amazing. Well, at what point God um, told Hannah, you need to forgive all the people that have mistreated you. And you need to write the prosecutor who prosecuted you. 
And she didn't want to do it, and she kept putting it off, but finally she did. And the prosecutor read what she had to say, and she quoted from uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, which says, You meant it for evil. Speaking of Joseph being thrown into prison and everything his brothers did to him. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so I forgive you, and I am committing you to a higher court. I'm going to leave what you did to me in God's hands. Well, the prosecutor was a woman who was convicted by that and actually went to Hannah's pastor and became a Christian. And now she leads Bible studies. So you just think about um, the people who are captive, that someone had to become a captive in order for them to be set free. We kick against what God is doing because we don't understand how merciful God is. We don't understand what God is really up to. We don't realize how he's going to use our suffering for the good of other people. And we don't understand how God is actually increasing our joy in heaven. One day Hannah will get to heaven and those other people will be there and that will just increase her joy as she looks around at those people. And she realizes that God put her in prison for seven years away from her four, well, five children. And under this false accusation, she wrestled with it. She wasn't perfect, but she saw how God worked through it in amazing ways. And she said, God taught me to trust him, that God is up to good. God is good, and he does good, even through the hardest things, even through things we don't understand, even through things we cannot imagine would actually be good for everybody involved. And so for me, it's very encouraging to know that even if I'm not in prison today, all of us have certain situations, certain relationships where God is saying, trust me, trust me, and love. Called Hannah to to trust him and to love. She did Bible studies in the prison. That was loving those people. And so whatever situation we're in, God calls us to trust him and to love. And so as we conclude, the question I just want to ask is, how is God calling you to trust him in your own present relationships and circumstances? And how is God calling you to love? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We do pray that it would be encouraging to us that what we find, especially in Acts 16, about how Paul and Silas suffered greatly, became captives themselves, that the jailer and his family might be set free. Thank you for the, the testimony of Hannah and how you did similar things in her life. And we thank you that you're doing similar things in our lives, that in various ways we're going through hard, difficult, suffering And yet you're doing it that others might find healing and that others might be set free. You're doing it in light of your grand purpose, your grand work of bringing people to believe in your son and to find their joy in him. Help us to trust you. Help us to love in our own circumstances and in our own relationships today, tomorrow, and until the end of our lives. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.